Thank God for all who have led us in worship this morning. It's good to be with you all. Today, I am preaching a story sermon, which is simply a sermon in the form of a story. And it's entitled, The Story of Greg's Paper, and based on Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, which I will now read from the New Revised Standard Version. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Greg drove down the familiar winding road and pulled into the driveway at the cul-de-sac with a big smile on his face. He had made it home for fall break, and his first stop was dinner at his grandmother's house. Greg, she exclaimed as he walked in the door, gave him a big hug, and showed him to the table where the food was already waiting for him. We're so glad you're here. Over dinner, Greg's grandmother said, I can hardly believe it's your last year of seminary. How is your semester going? Pretty good, Greg said, but I have to write a research paper for my Gospels class this week. I'm kind of bummed that I have to do schoolwork over break, but at least it's an interesting topic. Oh yes, what is the topic? His grandmother asked. Well, I've been assigned to write an interpretation of Mark 10, 17 through 22, the story of the rich young ruler. His grandmother stood up, walked over to the counter, and opened her well-worn Bible. 
She began to read the passage silently as Greg continued eating. Hmm, she said, "Uh uh-huh. There is one thing you lack, she said. Hmm, that's a tough passage, Greg. I know it, he said. And what's weird about my assignment is my professor doesn't want us to read any books for the research, but only to talk with people we know and then to build our interpretation based on those conversations. So I thought while I'm home, maybe I could talk to Uncle Ted since he's pastored for so many years and visit my old college professor, Dr. Matthews, since she specializes in New Testament. Of course, I want to talk to Pastor Brenda at church and I may also call my buddy Tim. You remember Tim, Grandma? Yes, I do. Well, he's in seminary now in another state. I thought he might have a helpful perspective to share. Among these folks, I figure I should be able to get some good insights. I'm sure you will, his grandmother said, and I'll be praying for you. On Monday, Greg placed a call to Tim, his old high school friend who was in seminary in another state. Greg asked him about Mark 10, the story of the rich young ruler, and together they discussed the text at length. Tim said, Greg, I think the key to this story is verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some think Jesus is drawing a distinction between himself and God as if God is good and Jesus is not, but that's not the case. The man had called Jesus good teacher, so Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. In other words, if you're going to call me good, you might as well call me God because I am divine. Tim continued, I think the rich man's problem was that he did not understand who Jesus was. If he had known who he was talking to, not just another teacher, but God in the flesh, he would have given his wealth to the poor and followed Jesus in a heartbeat. I mean, he loved his money. He probably loved his money too much. But if he had known who he was talking to, giving up the money would not have been an issue. The story shows us that recognizing Jesus' divine identity is pivotal. Greg pondered Tim's interpretation long after their call had ended. He liked it but he was eager to hear other perspectives. On Tuesday, Greg went to see his Uncle Ted, who had pastored churches up and down the East Coast for 37 years. Greg had given his uncle a heads up about which passage he would be asking about, and so Uncle Ted was ready to dive in right when Greg showed up. Greg, he said, I believe this story is about the dangers of wealth. I know it might seem an obvious or conventional interpretation, but I really believe that's at the heart of this text. The point is not that rich people can't be followers of Jesus. 
The point is that it's difficult for rich people to be followers of Jesus because money often has a way of taking over their lives. This is important for modern-day Americans because, you know, in relation to the rest of the world, many of us, including middle-class people like you and I, are rich. Money can hinder God's work in our lives if we're not careful. You know, Greg, in Mark 4, 19, back in the parable of the sower and the explanation, Jesus says the desire for riches can choke the word of God and make it unfruitful in people's lives. And that's exactly what happened to the rich young ruler. Uncle Ted continued, the man's money was a problem also because it, it kept him from having compassion for impoverished people. Jesus told him to give his fortune to the poor because he didn't want him to end up like the rich man who ignored poor Lazarus at his gate day after day and found himself in flames in the afterlife. Wealth is dangerous and it can separate us from God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to choose between God and wealth, and unfortunately, he chose poorly. Uncle Ted made some strong points, and Greg considered them at length later that day. Wealth is dangerous, Greg thought, but there has to be more to this story. On Wednesday, Greg met with Dr. Matthews, his New Testament professor from his college days. I'm so proud of you for your work in seminary, she said to Greg as the two of them sat down in her office surrounded by her hundreds of books. And I'm glad you're researching this particular story because there's an intriguing detail in verse 19 that has long fascinated me. You know, Jesus references the Ten Commandments here and he lists the last six. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. But there's one key difference in Jesus' list, Greg. Did you catch it? She asked. Instead of quoting the 10th commandment, do not covet, Jesus says, do not defraud. The word defraud, therefore, really stands out. The Greek verb is apostorain, which means to take away illegitimately. The word often referred to withholding wages from employees. Huh, Greg said. He had never heard this before. Raising her eyebrows, Dr. Matthews continued, perhaps the term appears here because the rich young ruler had been underpaying the poor laborers 
that were working his land. We know from verse 22 that he owned a lot of property and it was common in ancient Palestine for landowners to exploit the peasants that worked their land. Maybe Jesus was telling this guy that he needed to repent of his unrighteous business practices, kind of like Zacchaeus did, in order to be saved and become a disciple. Greg loved how Dr. Matthews pulled insights from the Greek. As always, she had given him something deep to chew on, and he mulled it over on the way home from her office. He wondered if Jesus might have been suggesting that the rich man give away his land to the very workers he had been exploiting on it. On Thursday, Greg went to see his pastor, Pastor Brenda, who had been his family's pastor for many years. After minutes of catching up on each other's latest news, Pastor Brenda opened the Bible on her desk and began to speak, as she always did, with clearly articulated wisdom. Greg, she said, this story is about idolatry. The rich man's wealth was an idol that kept him from God. He thought he had followed all the Ten Commandments since his youth, but in reality he hadn't got past number two. Do not make for yourself an idol. He worshipped wealth instead of God, and that's why Jesus asked him to give it up. Jesus doesn't require every rich person to give away his entire fortune. The call is specific to this man. For example, he doesn't make Zacchaeus give up all of his wealth in Luke 19, but he does inspire Zacchaeus to repent of his exploitative business practices. After meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus gave away half of his wealth and repaid people four times what he had cheated them. There was also the centurion in Luke chapter 7, who built a synagogue for the Jewish people and whose faith amazed Jesus. Remember him, Greg? Greg nodded. He was clearly a man of great means, but I guess since he was already generous with his money, it was clear that wealth was not an idol in his life. So Jesus didn't tell him to give away his entire fortune. Jesus told the rich young ruler to give away all of his wealth, not because it was wealth, but because it was an idol. Greg noticed that Pastor Brenda was kind of shifting into preaching mode right there in her office as she continued. The important thing, Greg, is that wealth may have been this guy's idol, but we all have idols that can distance us from Christ. It might be athletics. It might be academics, it might be our career, it might be our ego, which leads us to think we can do everything on our own without any of God's help. The broader application of the story, Greg, is that everybody has something to repent from in order to follow Jesus more fully. It just so happened that this man's idol was well. Greg really liked Pastor Brenda's interpretation, taking copious notes as she spoke. 
Greg was starting to feel like his paper was coming together. On Friday, he took the morning off from research to relax a bit. And in the afternoon, he talked with his parents for a while on their screened-in porch. He needed one or two more sources for his research. So he asked his mom and dad to read the short story and give him their thoughts about it. Greg's mother looked up from her Bible and said, Well, honey... To me, the best part of the story is verse 21. It says, Jesus looked at the rich man and felt love for him. My study Bible says this is the only individual in Mark's entire gospel that Jesus is said to love. Jesus knew the man would reject him, yet he loved him still. It reminds me that Jesus loves the whole world. He loves the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil, the poor and the rich, the sick and the healthy. He loves everybody. Yes, yes, Greg's dad interjected, but you know, it's not a mushy, indulgent type of love that accommodates our every desire. It's a tough love that challenges us to repent so that we can live the life God wants us to live. As the rich man walked away, you know, Jesus could have stopped him to negotiate, but he didn't. It appears to me that the terms of discipleship are non-negotiable. We must remove everything from our lives that hinders us from following Christ. We must repent and seek him. That's what the love of Jesus says. He loves us so very much that he doesn't want anyone or anything besides him to run our life. Greg had always admired his parents, and here again they had given him good food for thought. On Saturday, Greg spent all day writing a rough draft of his paper. He wrote about how the rich man failed to understand that Jesus is God in human form. And if he had known who he was talking to, he might have given up his fortune on the spot. He wrote about the dangers of wealth and how the man chose to serve money instead of serving God. He wrote that Jesus admonished the man to stop defrauding his peasant workers and even to give them the land that they had been working for him. He wrote about how wealth was an idol in the rich man's life and how other things can easily become idols that distance us from God. He wrote about how Jesus loved the man deeply, but he would not negotiate the cost of discipleship. Greg wrote and wrote deep into the night beneath the lamplight in his old bedroom, but as he drifted off to sleep, totally exhausted, he had a nagging feeling that something was still missing from his interpretation. On Sunday morning, he went to church with his family. And after worship, they all gathered at Greg's grandmother's house for a big Sunday lunch before he was to drive back to seminary. After the meal, people were 
milling around, visiting and catching up, and that's when Greg's grandmother pulled him aside. Greg, she said, how's your research going? It's going well, Greg replied. I've gotten some great ideas for interpreting this text, you know, from a lot of different people and from a lot of different angles. It's really fascinating, but honestly, Grandma, I still feel like something's missing. Well, his grandmother said, I've been thinking about that story all week long. Greg smiled. His grandmother had been teaching Sunday school for decades And he knew she would have something to add. His grandmother said, here's a man who had everything. And Jesus said, there was one thing he lacked. The man wanted eternal life, but he lacked one thing to get it. I kept wondering what that one thing was, Greg, because Jesus never tells us in the text. Then I noticed that the story right before the rich young ruler is the account of the children coming to Jesus. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Did you catch that, Greg? Jesus said the kingdom of God is something to be received, not achieved. The man said, what must I do? What must I accomplish in order to earn eternal life? His question was misguided from the start because we don't earn eternal life by doing good deeds. We receive it through faith, through childlike faith. Greg nodded and smiled as his grandmother continued. I think the one thing the man lacked was childlike faith. Maybe that's why Jesus calls his disciples children in verse 24, to remind them that they must become like children to inherit God's kingdom. Little children are humble, Greg, and they're eager to trust somebody. They don't care too much about money, and they love a good adventure. Trust me, I know kids. I raised four of them. If the man had had childlike faith, he would have given away his fortune, received eternal life as a gift from God, and gone off on a marvelous adventure to trust and obey Jesus in a whole new form of of life. Grandma, Greg said, I think you just finished my paper. Amen. If you have never put your faith in Christ, if you've never exercised childlike faith in God, Won't you come forward this morning? I'll be down front to receive you during this last song. If you want to be baptized in coming weeks, if you want to join the Second Baptist Church of Richmond, we would love to have you. I'll be right down front during our last hymn of the service as we continue together in worship.
It has been a joy to worship together today. A couple of announcements before we depart. On Sunday, August 13th at 6.30 p.m., we will have a special service called Worship at the River, uh, right down at the James River. It's at 6.30 p.m. August 13th, and it will include river baptism. So if you or someone in your household is interested in river baptism, please let us know this week. Our staff would be happy to talk with you about that. Also, I wanted to mention that this past week we sent out news about our Minister of Children, Reverend Katie Kenyon's resignation. And we will certainly miss Katie, and we pray many blessings for her and her exciting new endeavors. I want you to know we will have the opportunity to bid Katie farewell in a special way on Sunday, August the 13th, which will be her last official Sunday with us. And in the meantime, if you get a chance to share your gratitude with her, please do so for her wonderful years of ministry here. And now, while it's time for our worship service to conclude, it's time for our worship and our service to continue. For church is not so much a place to which we come as a place from which we go. And as we go from this place today, let us go with the love of Christ overflowing in us so that it reaches out to those neighbors we encounter along life's way. And let us go with the joy and the peace of the gospel, being good witnesses through the help of the Holy Spirit in word and in deed. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.